please remain standing with me and open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 21. Context of our sermon today will be Joshua 21 and the finishing off of the distribution of the land as cities are given to the Levites. Our reading will be the first three verses and the last three verses of Joshua 21. Joshua 21, beginning in verse 1. Then the heads of the households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. Skipping down to verse 43. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. This ends the reading of God's word and you may be seated. Did you catch that? Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. In this text, all means all. (laughs) Some of you know what I'm talking about. Let us pray before we hear from the Lord this morning. Holy God, we do pray now um, as an ever-needy people to hear from you, as an ever-needy pastor to be empowered by you to declare your truth. Lord, grant us grace this hour, ears to hear, hearts of understanding, um, to see above all else that you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we continue our series on Joshua, um, who is now um, advanced in years. His brother is like 110. No ministry retirement in his mind. He's given instructions from the Lord in chapters 13 to 21 that will ensure that the people of Israel um, take possession of all the land before Joshua dies. And those final three verses here in chapter 21 um, summarize the book to this point, and it completes the third uh, major section. Um, The first was Israel's entrance into the promised land. The second was the conquest of the land. The third is, of course, um, the dividing up of that land that has been conquered. Now, again, the emphasis of all of this, beloved, falls on the Lord's faithfulness. And there are three aspects of his faithfulness that we're going to hone in on this morning. Um, The first is the fulfillment of prophecy regarding the tribe of Levi. It's very important. It's all important, but it's very important that we understand this. The second is the fulfillment of the Lord's promise, and that is every piece of that land was delivered up as God promised. And then all of that foreshadows the third and most important point, and that is God's promise of our ultimate inheritance in Christ's final victory. Okay? That, that's the course upon which we'll walk here this morning. Now, the Lord, remember, fulfilled his word um, spoken centuries before to Abraham in just the most extraordinary ways. And being so familiar with the story of the promised land being fulfilled, um, 
we mustn't take it for granted because nothing like this had ever happened in the world before, and this event in history is utterly unique and remarkable. Verse 43, look at it. So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. That is, every promise initially given to Abraham nearly 600 years before all came to pass. So the first thing for us to recognize by way of application to our own lives this morning, I want to start here with an application. And that is, while all of these things promised came to pass, God did not promise that it was going to come easily. God did not promise that it would come easily. Many events took place in this time period, as you know, that is between the promise given to Abraham some nearly 600 years before and their fulfillment here in Joshua. Recall, for instance... Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who thought that his beloved son Joseph had been dead for years when his jealous brothers sold him into slavery and he was sent down to Egypt and they go home and they say, Daddy, Daddy, look at our brother's cloak. It's bloodstained. He was ravaged by a wild beast. And for years he thought his son was dead. He's taken down into Egypt. He's shown favor early on. He's in Potiphar's household. And in obedience to the Lord, and not wanting to dishonor the name of the Lord, when Potiphar's wife came on to him, he was falsely accused and thrown into prison. While in prison, God sends Pharaoh some very troubling dreams, one of which was seven gaunt, ugly cows devouring seven fat, healthy cows. Prophesied by Joseph that there would be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of incredible famine. Joseph is brought out of prison. And during those seven years of hard famine, Jacob is forced to send his remaining sons down to Egypt to buy food in order to live. And while they're there, Joseph has ascended to second in power just under Pharaoh. He recognizes his brothers. They do not recognize him. And then through a situation um, orchestrated by Joseph, he eventually reveals himself. He dispels their fear because once they find out it's their brother, they're scared to death. He's going to put them to death. He spares them. He, he forgives them. And then Jacob and his family are given the best of land by Pharaoh himself. That is the land of Goshen. All of that by way of God's providence. Easy? No. Now, according to God's providence, that deliverance would then eventually lead to 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Bondage that would serve as an incubator, multiplying the family of Jacob from 70 to well over a million over the course of those 400 years. Deliverance would then come again. According to God's promise, the great exodus out of Egypt, followed by 40 years of wandering in the wilderness because of unbelief with a lot of troubles, many trials, and heartaches along the way. And they're not there yet. God promised that they would cross the Jordan on dry ground, and they did. They enter into Canaan, which means they enter into numerous battles against Canaanites. So in order to gain the land promised to them, they had to fight for it. But they weren't fighting alone because the Lord was on their side. Fear not, said the Lord. 
Now, that does not mean there weren't any who died in those battles, friends. That doesn't mean there weren't any Israelites who were maimed in those battles. But God promised, and he fulfilled that promise. And they entered the land by way of hardships, difficulties, and troubles. God does not promise that this, this life is going to be an easy one, Christian. Can I get a witness? The road to heaven is straight. It is narrow because it is through Christ alone, but it is also rocky. There are many potholes and highway robbers hiding along the way, so to speak. Along the way, some of you suffer with affliction. Some of you struggle with learning patience. Some struggle with loneliness. Some struggle with family difficulties. Some struggle with bitterness. Bitterness, by the way, defiles many. But whatever the case, the, the greatest struggle every one of us faces, you know what it is? It's our own sin. Sin, Satan, and a godless world who hates Christ and therefore hates Christ's representatives. Enemies against which we must fight. We do not battle against flesh and blood, amen? But spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. So we have the whole armor of God so that we can stand and resist the wiles and the tricks of the devil because our sins will rise up against us and produce feelings of wanting to give in. If you read uh, Spurgeon's AM devotional yesterday, he said this, despair comes and whispers, lie down and die. Give it all up, Christian. Cowardice says, retreat, go back to the worldling's way of action. Table Talk Magazine, this past week, I don't remember which day it was, but the writer said this, quote, the devil will throw everything he has at professing believers seeking to destroy us and to make us abandon the faith. God certainly will preserve to the end all those whom he has saved, and we persevere through confidence that Jesus will return and finish what he started by renewing us and all creation. End of quote. That is our promised inheritance, friends. New heaven and new earth and glorified bodies. That's your inheritance. That's where we will end this morning. Okay? So Israel's persevering hope, that's our persevering hope. Israel's persevering hope was this land promised by God. That first generation did not enter. Only two of that first generation did. Joshua and Caleb. Israel died in the wilderness because of unbelief. And the land of Canaan is now inherited fully and completely by this next generation, prophecy fulfilled. And so that shows us that Canaan is the type of which the new heaven and new earth is a reality. This all points us to that, friends. You see Christ? Have you seen Christ through Joshua? Pointing us to the greater Joshua. This lesser Joshua points us to the greater Joshua. The name Joshua means Yahweh saves. The Lord is salvation. Jesus has the same name Joshua. It's just the Greek version. The Lord who is salvation. So when we're confident of these promises, we will know that nothing can ultimately harm us as rocky as the way may be towards the promised land. So we can stand fast against all opposition and persevere to the end. That's the first point of application as we've seen over the weeks. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. All right? So now we pick up where we left off last week. Last time, here now in verses 1 through 3, we're seeing the division of the land, that dividing up of the promised land. 21 verse 1, Then the heads of the households of the Levites approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. 
So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities with their pasture lands according to the command of the Lord. Forty-eight Levitical cities were, were scattered throughout the land for the Levites to dwell in and to serve in. Remember, there was no land directly inherited by the tribe of Levi. They were to live off the tithes of the other tribes as servants of the Lord. So there were 48 cities designated for the Levites to live in, out of which six were what? Cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. So in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy, God had already given instructions for those cities, that is the cities of refuge. If you look back at chapter 20, verse 2, speaks to, speak to the sons of Israel saying, designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. That is from the Goel, which is a kinsman redeemer, a redeemer of blood. Every family had one. Every Israelite family had a Goel. Remember Boaz, he was, a Bo he was the Goel, kinsman redeemer. And they, they could chase down someone who murdered another family member, and he was the avenger of blood. So last time we were reminded that there was a system of justice established long before the Mosaic Covenant. And that is Genesis 9 and verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. The only creature that bears the image of God are human beings. Not all lives are equal, friend. We were reminded last time, dogs are not people. Cats are not people. Whales are not people. Dolphins are not people. The image bearers of God are human beings. So when you murder someone, you're murdering the image of God. Therefore, your, your blood must be shed. Capital punishment. That law has never been abdicated in Scripture. That shows us the value that God places upon human life. But what about the manslayer? Someone who's in, in his negligence kills another human being by accident. Well, his life is also valuable before God. So God in his mercy and his grace provided these cities of refuge. Six cities, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west, one in the north, one in the south, one in the middle. So from wherever you were fleeing, you could reach one of those cities within a day on foot, city of refuge, established by God, not man. God, out of his mercy, provides this. And Jewish history informs us, as I pointed out last week, that there were road signs leading all along the way to these cities that said, refuge, refuge, refuge. The roads were to be cleared out every spring by the Israelites. Knock down the high places, fill in the low places, give them a clear shot to get to the city of refuge. The gates of these cities were to remain opened at all times. So that if one accidentally kills another, he can flee to one of these cities swiftly, run to the gates, ask the elders, please provide refuge there's a man who's going to be seeking my life in just a moment, an avenger of blood, but I did not mean to do that which I did. Give me shelter. If he's found to be innocent, they're ordered by God to provide refuge. The one guilty of manslaughter was to remain in that city of refuge until the death of the high priest. The high priest. So whenever the death of the high priest was announced, from out of these cities of refuge would come running people who are now free and can go back home. Their record was cleared, symbolizing atonement had been made for them by the death of the high priest. Where does that point us? To our great high priest. Atonement has been made through the greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great. High priest. 
Now, it's not until we turn to the pages of the New Testament that we see the greater Joshua made clear by way of his life, death, and resurrection that he is the great high priest. So it's only in Christ that we can hide from the consequences of our past sins and actions. Glory. Amen? Refuge. He's our refuge. Take refuge in the Son. For his wrath is quickly kindled, Psalm 2. That's how you make peace with God. Taking refuge in our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. So these cities of refuge point forward to him. He is the city of refuge. By way of his atoning blood, we're set free. Glory. So while mercy is shown to us through these cities of refuge, it is also shown to us, beloved, by the fact that the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Levi of all tribes, serve within those cities. Now, we've read several times throughout the book of Joshua that the tribe of Levi Levi, would not be granted an allotment of the promised land that the others were receiving. Chapter 18 and verse 7, we read, The Levites had no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. Okay, so notice what's happening here, this tribe of Levi. They're being scattered. 48 cities. They're scattered. Numbers tells us that there were 43,000 Levite males at that time. So they're scattered. They're not given a state, no region, no district, but scattered throughout the land. So the question is, why exactly did the Levites not get a portion of the promised land allotted to them? That's the question. Well, answer. Because first and foremost, it is yet another glorious fulfillment of prophecy. God follows through on his promises. This is another promise that that, that came to pass, but this time it was a consequence of sin, actually. A consequence of sin. While at the same time, it is one of the most vibrant pictures of grace in all of Scripture this tribe of Levi, another display of God's mercy. What's mercy? Children, mercy is not getting what you deserve. You deserve what your pastor deserves. You know what it is? Hell. That's what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. In adults, you're included in that as well. Mercy not getting what you deserve. The the tribe of Levi deserved to be destroyed by God, who's holy. So originally, the tribe of Levi was scattered throughout the land because of the curse that Jacob placed upon his son Levi, who is the fountainhead of the tribe of Levi. A curse. In Genesis 49... When Jacob was 147 years old, he calls his 12 sons around his bed. They're down in Egypt. In order to receive the blessings of their father. Now, when he came to Simeon and Levi, he pronounced a curse on them. Look at it, Genesis 49, verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. These are the words of Jacob, their father. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men. And in in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Scatter them. That prophetic utterance, beloved, 
was due to one of the cruelest sagas in Scripture. It occurred in Genesis 34, where Shechem, the prince of the city of Shechem, had raped their sister Dinah and wanted to take her as his wife. When Simeon and Levi heard about it, they met with Shechem and Shechem's father, Hamor, and offered terms of peace with no intention of keeping those terms at all. It was a huge ploy saying, we cannot enter into family relationship with you. We know that you want to marry our sister. We can't do it because you're Gentiles. Unless, of course, all you men bear the sign of the covenant. That is, you and all your men must be circumcised. So Shechem, in love with Dinah, said, I'll do it. And guess what? All you, my men, you'll also do it. So they were all circumcised. So while all of them were healing, they were totally incapable of combat. Levi and Simeon come and slaughter every one of them with the sword. In Genesis 34, verse 25, we read, On the third day when they were sore, the Bible's clear, isn't it? Simeon and Levi took their swords and killed all the males. That wasn't justice. That was revenge. They plundered the city. They took all of the wives and the little ones as slaves. They brought shame upon their father's name. For Jacob to have to say, those are my boys. Shame. Genesis 34 and verse 40, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, listen to this, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink, by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, to the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So here's Levi, a cruel and murderous man, Genesis 34, and the brother doesn't get any better. When we get to Genesis 37, he's revealed as a man without any natural affection for lo or, or, or love and sends his own brother, Joseph, off into slavery, selling them, him rather, along with his brothers, to slave traders. So he's a murderer of many in Shechem and one who delivers his own brother, into slavery. Centuries later, centuries later, Jacob's curse comes to pass. The Levites are scattered throughout the land. See it? Isn't it glorious? Now, Simeon also was just, it was a small tribe basically absorbed into the tribe of Judah, scattered throughout. But Levi, the, the, the origin, the fountainhead of the Levites his offspring, they're given no land and they're scattered. Here's the inheritance, 48 cities. So uh, Jacob's prophecy is fulfilled. Levi's descendants, they're scattered. And yet, and yet, they serve as a picture of God's redeeming and recovering grace. You see the grace here? They didn't get what they deserved. Annihilation. They're priests priests in the land, ministers of the gospel scattered throughout the land. That's God's providential blessing. So here they are now, the tribe of priests. They're called to read and teach the word of God to God's people. They will go on and serve in the tabernacle. Gospel ministers slaughtering lamb after lamb, pointing to Jesus Christ, the lamb crucified, slaughtered before the foundation of the earth, providing atonement for the people. So they have hands now rendered clean by the virtue of God's promise that he'll fulfill it by way of his great high priest, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how they're cleansed, the same way you're cleansed. They look forward by faith, we look back by faith. The fulfillment, 
It's Jesus Christ, crucified, raised again. See it? It is sobering, though, amen? It is sobering. It's glorious. So because of God's mercy, this tribe still exists. They serve within these cities. Such a great picture of God's sovereign, recovering grace. How many of you can relate to this? Perhaps you were a prodigal. Perhaps you were raised in gospel truth. Perhaps you fled. Perhaps you went on the run. And perhaps one day the Lord in his grace brought you to your senses, to where you looked up and said, Lord, I've sinned against you. Like David did, I've sinned against you, Lord, and you alone, ultimately. And here you are today. So here the registration of these Levites, as I said earlier, is 23,000. They're scattered throughout these 48 cities. Their primary function now is to be teachers of the word of God, preaching the gospel of God throughout these Levitical cities, to explain it, to help people understand it. So here at this point in Joshua, you know what we see? A real sense of unity within the nation of Israel. And this, friends is the high point of redemptive history for Israel because this unity will be very short-lived. It's all downhill from there. Right, Matthew? Teaching as you have these last few months through Sunday school, it's all downhill. By the time we get to the next book, the book of Judges, what do we read? Everyone was doing what was right in his, in his own eyes, just like this nation. This nation, these Levites served as salt and light within the nation. How do you serve in this perverse generation? Same as salt and light. That's all we are. We're pointing people to the refuge. Christ. Eventually, you'll see a line of corrupt kings. The kingdom will split. And Israel will be taken off into exile but yet we see his mercy on display. So in verses 4 through 40, I'm not going to read those. You can read those at home for some. It's like reading a will, really. The dividing up of the land, but it's detailed, and it's there for a record to show again how faithful God is to his promises. And then in verses, uh, that's verses 4 to 40, the record of those allotted cities. In verses 41 to 42, we see it summarized as follows. Notice, all the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the sons of Israel were 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its surrounding pasture lands. Thus it was with all these cities. Now you can jump down to verse 43. We see there, 43 through 45, we hear of God's faithfulness yet again in that all of the land promises for Israel were what? fulfilled. Verse 45, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. So we see the first of God's faithful promises fulfilled. That is the curse laid upon the Levites. We see mercy there. Now we move into this, God's promise fulfilled by way of land allotment. Not one of the good promises which the Lord made to the house of Israel failed. Not one. So the summary statement, verse 43, look at it. God gave to Israel all the land. Verse 45, not one word failed, all came to pass. The reason I emphasize this is because, we have to take a little time on this, is because those verses address a matter of great controversy. I'm dividing um, Reformed Christians from most um, evangelicals today. And it has to do with eschatology, which is a word that means it's the doctrine of last things. Okay, Eschatology. And it happens to be with what is known uh, as uh, dispensationalism, which is a very popular form of evangelicalism here in America today. Interpreted to me, that the physical land of Israel forever remains a place of special concern for God. That's what they teach. 
Now, if you deny that, they say, that lays the groundwork for anti-Semitism. Believe it or not, that's lunacy. Not true. See, God's word poses a huge problem with the dispensational understanding of land promises for Israel today. Because Joshua emphatically says that God's promises are now already what? Fulfilled. Fulfilled. That means full. Fulfilled. As promised. Fulfilled. Now, of course, the question 3,400 years ago to these Israelites would have been, but will the people of Israel maintain possession of the land now that it's theirs? And the answer is an emphatic no. N-O. Because God will eventually evict them from Canaan because of their disobedience and idolatry which invokes the curses connected to the land under the Mosaic Covenant. We see them living under the blessing of the covenant at the time of Joshua. But God said this in Leviticus 18, Israel, listen up. If you go on and practice that which the Canaanites do, you know, the ones that I'm vomiting out of the land, guess what? Leviticus 18, I will vomit you out of the land just as I did the nation before you. Any questions? Just as Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden, Israel was cast from out of Canaan, both at the time of the Babylonian captivity, and then again, once they returned, at the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Banished. Now, some believe today, dispensationalists believe today, and I'm not bagging on dispensationalists. I have many friends who are dispensational and premillennial in their eschatology. Don't we all? Does that divide us? Let it not. We had some zealous young men here about 10 years ago who went around town causing trouble. Um, Fair warning, if anyone comes into this church and causes trouble like that, you'll have a chance to repent on your way out the door. Nevertheless, I believe dispensationalism to be incorrect with regard to the living scriptures. Some believe that the Jewish nation has an unassailable right to that land. So in dispensational circles, that land is tied to what they teach as a seven-year tribulation preceded by what is called a secret rapture of the church from out of here. But guess what? There's nothing secret about the rapture. It's loud. No, we're not going to be taken away for seven years. It's just not in the scriptures. I know you've been taught that. It's just not there. When Christ comes back, if you're alive and you're caught up, guess what? You're coming with him to judge the world, period. And you'll be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. But you're not going away for seven years. Find it in scripture. You come show me. Then they say that Uh, There'll be the appearance of the Antichrist in a literal temple on literal, literal ground in Jerusalem. If you rebuild another temple and sacrifice lambs on the altar, guess what that is? It's called blasphemy. Christ came. All those Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to the once and for all crucified lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let there never be such blasphemy to take place. So if they ever do rebuild one and sacrifice lambs on the altar, that's just blasphemy. That's not according to the will of God and the word of God. Okay? So they also teach, I'm just laying out facts, with regard to the land, that when they were banished in 70 AD, remember, there were many people in Israel that came back and reestablished that as a nation once again in 1948. And they believe that that's the fulfillment of the land promise given to Abraham. But when we read scripture, we read that that promise was fulfilled in Joshua 21. Already fulfilled. Now, dispensationalists also claim that the generation living 
when Israel became a nation again in 1948, is the generation that will see the Lord Jesus Christ return. Like, this is very popular, like in, you know, Calvary Chapel movement and things like that. It's a great denomination. They teach the gospel, but they're really heavy on that. So much so that books came out in 1988, or in the 1980s, that said, um, 88 reasons that Jesus will return in 1988. <laughs> One prominent pastor from the movement um, predicted that Jesus would come back in 1981, and this was his reasoning. Israel became a nation again in 1948. A generation is 40 years. That makes it 1988. Subtract seven years for the Great Tribulation, and what do you have? 1981. Guess what? He was wrong. Don't ever predict. Don't you dare ever predict when the Lord Jesus is coming back because no one knows the hour. He will come like a thief in the night. Fact. No nation state or ethnic people group, including the modern day state of Israel, possess a special covenant with the Lord. Do we understand this? It's only the new covenant. You're either in Christ or you're not. Old Testament Israel was indeed God's special people only, only to prepare the way for Messiah, the Son of God. And he's come. He's come. Paul says that the true children of Abraham, they're not children of the flesh. They're children of the promise. Who's the promise? Messiah, the Christ, the royal anointed one. He's come and he's conquered and he's still conquering. Putting all of his enemies under his feet, under his footstool. Look, what, look at the words of our Lord. Remember the woman at the well? John 4. Jesus said to her, woman. If that means ma'am, it's not like woman, listen up. It's woman, ma'am, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. That was part of our call to the call to worship this morning. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Who's the seeker? God seeks and he finds those who are his to worship him in spirit and truth. So the, the Messiah has come and God's people today are no longer linked to one nation. They are truly an international people. Amen? Just look around at the faces in the room. Amen? Red and yellow, black and white, we are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. In international people, the church of Jesus Christ, Hebrews 11 teaches us that the promise of the land given to Israel was typological of something much greater. That's a heavenly kingdom. Inconceivable in the days of the patriarchs. Nevertheless, Abraham, what do we read about Abraham? He was looking forward to the city, Hebrews tells us, that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. So the author of Hebrews commends Abraham because although the land promise was something that he could see with his eyes, and he did, he saw the land, but by faith he knew that the land of Canaan pointed forward to the heavenly city whose builder and architect is the Lord himself. Ultimately, a new heaven and a new earth. Job knew that. I know that one day in this body, what? The body that was suffering, I will see my redeemer. Remember that? So when Joshua says it all came to pass... This is where the eyes of faith take us from Canaan here in the Bible to the heavenly city, not physical soil in the Middle East. We have to have our eschatology right to get the gospel right or parts of the gospel right. 
That leads us to our last point of God's faithfulness. So we, we, we see God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promise as regards the cursing of the Levitical tribe through his servant Jacob. We see God's promise in fulfilling that which he promised to give to Israel, all of the land. Look what's promised to you, verse 1 of Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, what? What did it do? It passed away. When does it pass away? When Christ comes again, without notice. Okay? If there's a secret rapture, guess how many comings of Christ there will be? Three. What does the Bible teach? Two. One to suffer, one to conquer all, to set up a new heaven and a new earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All things. You know, the book of Revelation, we, we studied that a few years ago. If, if you have never been through the book of Revelation, I'd encourage you and I'd invite you to go to our website and, and go through and listen to those. And I think it would be incredibly encouraging to you. Witness from those of you who have? Very encouraging. The book of Revelation is filled with visions that take you to the end and back again, okay? It's called recapitulation. The book of Revelation is not chronological. It's a recapitu recapitulation of events, that is the retelling or recapping of the same event over and over again, because if you look at the pictures of Revelation, then Jesus comes back seven times because there's seven pictures of his glorious return, amen? Seven is the number of fulfillment and perfection. The fact that Christ is coming and that he is going to conquer all, all of his enemies and all of our enemies, finally and ultimately, vision after vision of him coming like a thief in the night, declaring war with great power and might, foreshadowed in the lesser Joshua. Did that brother wage war? Did he conquer? Did he conquer all the land? He foreshadows the greater Joshua, Jesus Christ. Joshua, Jesus, same name. He will conquer all. So when he comes again, he will give us rest on every side, fulfilling every promise. He'll set up a new heaven and a new earth, not a geopolitical kingdom in Jerusalem on a sliver of land again. That's done. Amen. One amen. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, as far as wiping out all of his enemies. I read from it earlier, and I said I'd hold off in commentary. We'll look at it now. First, 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 6. For after all, for after all, it is only, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints. On that day, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. That may appear harsh. That may appear as harsh. You know why? Because it is. What I just read is that harsh. You better believe it. Because only lasting rest can be given to God's people but by the decisive cutting off of his enemies. That's what we see in Joshua 21. 
Christ comes again, that's the ultimate cutting off of his enemies. Ralph Davis comments on this. I love Ralph Davis's commentaries. Remember what he said? I quoted him a few weeks ago. I said, you know, we, you know in our culture, we serve a Jesus who comes to us reeking with hand cream. <laughs> Even though I wear hand cream. <laughs> Davis now says this with regard to 2 Thessalonians. Quote, we too easily and sentimentally forget all this. When, now listen to this. When we pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we surely don't suppose this will come as a result of a unanimous United Nations resolution with which all nations immediately and gladly comply. See rather Psalm 2, where the nations rage, right? And they plot a vain thing, trying to throw off the restraint of God and his mighty son. God sits in heavens and what does he do? He laughs, okay? Back to Davis. Such rest and peace will lastingly come only when Christ visibly conquers all his and our enemies. This is the promise of Joshua 21, says Davis. Yahweh gave Israel rest when he defeated their enemies. This is the biblical pattern. It serves as a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory and our rest. And I'm tired, spiritually tired. Anybody else? It's wearisome, man. The battles are fierce. Rest is coming. The road is rocky now. Take heart. He's going to divide an inheritance for all his people in glory, new heaven, new earth, but now is the time of trial. Friends, now is the time of sorrow. Now is the time of tribulation. Now is the time of heartache. Now is the time of separation from our loved ones who die. It's not time to rest yet. But our rest is in him. Flee to him. He's the refuge. If you're not in him, flee to him. Yet, at the same time, now don't miss this. I'm wrapping up. Don't miss this. Just like the Levites, we are a forgiven line of sinners who are here to represent him, just as the Levites were. A royal what? Priesthood. Look at it, 1 Peter 2. This is who you are. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you from out of darkness and into this marvelous light. A sinner I was on the road to hell, called out by God's grace, brought into the light, and now I do this. Called by God to proclaim his word, a wretched sinner saved by grace. A royal priesthood, we are just like the Levites. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that's Christian ministry. Okay, and no thoughtful Christian with a Bible in his hand will ever underestimate the importance of Christian ministry. You know, our world would be unrecognizable without it. Believe it or not, infinitely worse it would be. I know it's on the decline, but that's just a hand, the hand of God's judgment. Many churches have compromised preaching the whole counsel of God. Once they get back and repent and get back to this, you know what you're going to see? Either the church being persecuted by way of sword or a great revival, one or the other. (laughs) Problem with preachers today, I quoted, uh, who was that I quoted? A guy. (laughs) The problem with preachers today is that nobody wants to kill them anymore. right? You tell people what they want. They don't want to kill you. (laughs) You're feeding them poison. So awaiting all of those who are in Christ is our land of Canaan. 
a new heaven and a new earth. So when Joshua said it, will all, it all came to pass, the eyes of faith take us from this Canaan that we're reading about here 3,400 years ago to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. That's called glory. That's final rest. Amen? I can wait, but I can't wait. Right? There's work to be done. The Lord doesn't need me to do it. I know that. But I would love to see some people I know come to faith in Christ that I've been pleading. I'm a beggar, I told you, begging the Lord to save them. Many. We will glorify the greater Joshua, Christ Jesus, who has truly, who will have truly conquered all the land. Now, if you believe that, if you believe that, that should influence the way you live now. If you believe that, that should influence where your eyes are affixed now. So that you won't expend all of your energies on what is perishing. You know John Piper? You know all of his work and don't waste your life? I was a member of one of Piper's quotes this past week. Piper said this a number of years ago, don't waste your life. He said, I want to tell you about a tragedy. Here's the tragedy. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs. Bob was 59 and Penny was 51. Now they live in Florida. Well, of course. <laughs> Where they cruise on their 30-foot boat playing softball and collecting shells. He went on to say this, don't buy it. Don't buy the American dream, a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement. Collecting shells is the last chapter before you stand before the creator of the universe and give an account of what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. <laughs> and I've got a nice swing and look at my boat. Don't, he says, waste your life. End of quote. Very Piper-esque. Now, if you believe the inheritance that is yours in Christ, it influences where your eyes are affixed now. The fact that God is forever faithful. He will get you there, but not without pain, trouble, and war. Amen? Guaranteed. So we have to encourage one another along the way. You want men fighting with you, alongside of you, and women who are warriors for the gospel. That means truth. Amen? Amen. Now, if you don't believe that, all you have is now. All you have is now. This is your heaven. This is heaven. If you're not in Christ, this is heaven. This is it. You are most to be pitied. This is it. You do not want to meet Christ in battle any more than you would have wanted to meet the lesser Joshua in battle at Canaan. So repent and believe. Come lay the hold of Christ by faith this morning and you'll be at peace with God. At peace. So stop trying to fight him if you're trying to fight him. Put down your arms. Lay down your arms. He will become your master and he will wipe away all of your sins and wash you and cleanse you with his blood guaranteed of heavenly rest only in him repent believe come to christ this morning so that on the day that he does return he will return for you not against you amen for you so deal with him now before it's too late the road is straight, it's narrow because it's by way of Christ alone, it's rocky, there are a lot of potholes, beloved brothers and sisters, but it all leads to, let's say it together, glory, glory, amen? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we do thank you for these glorious pictures, the gospel shown to us throughout redemptive history. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you loved us first. And Lord, I just want to pray that you grant encouragement to my brothers and sisters in the midst of their trials, struggles, and troubles, that they might lift their eyes 
to receive, Lord, a blessing of your sanctifying grace this morning. Lord, comfort their troubled hearts, I do pray. Um, Ease their pain, their anxieties by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to endure. Help us to run with that endurance, to persevere, because we're really weak. People sitting in the pew who are weak, preacher at the pulpit who's weak, give us the strength that can only be found by the way of your Holy Spirit as we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.